I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hello, welcome back to another edition of I-94 Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Review Shows. I'm Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Jamie. Today we have a very special guest. We have a native Chicagoan and, in fact, a zine legend here with us, Anne Elizabeth Moore, uh, who is the editor and one of the founders of Punk Planet and has a new book out called Body Horror. And thank you so much for coming back to our town. And, oh, uh, God, I'll come back anytime. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Um, you uh, this is a, a recent book that you've got, Body Horror, and I think we'd like to kind of start at the top. Um, this is a collection of essays, and can you just kind of take through what, take us through, and our listeners who have not heard the essays yet, what, what are you trying to explore and, and, and get across here? Yeah, so Body Horror looks at uh, the sort of labor history, women's labor history in particular, that I've been studying as a journalist for about seven years. I did a lot of work in Cambodia. Your listeners are probably already aware of this, but a lot of people aren't. Looking at particularly women in the garment trade and the fashion industry. And it sort of connects that body of work to... These ideas that I've been kicking around in the back of my head for a long time around horror films and women's sort of participation in or lack of participation in them, and then very recent experiences that I've had in the medical world. Okay. And in fact, that's a good point. We have a reading quickly from, from Anne. Why don't we listen to that, and then we're going to come right back with more from Anne Elizabeth Moore. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago. This is I-94. Number three. Many people will offer advice. No, Everyone in some way or another will offer advice. Some will tell you to change the way you eat or how to feel. They may suggest you find a better doctor, as if you do not live daily with the failures of modern medicine. Others will tell you how you can make it easier for them to understand what you are going through, or demand that you be patient with them. You must try not to laugh. If people grow annoyed at your behavior, they may repeatedly ask what is wrong with you, even after you've told them one million times that you are sick. Still others will believe resolutely that you have done something wrong. They will say, aha, at the wrong time when you relay an anecdote, or forward articles to you about smoking, yoga, or drinking tap water. They do this out of kindness, but what is being said is, you are failing to live up to my expectations of you. If you bother to listen to other people at all, although I can understand why you would not, you may wish to translate everything anyone tells you into the phrase, I care about you more than I myself realize, more than I am currently capable of expressing. Do this without speaking, inside your own head. It is only for you. Number four. This is important. Do not hate your disease. If you can, try not to hate anything at all, but that may be too hard. You have a right to be angry. Still, hate is for people who feel they have nothing to lose, for people who are comfortable sitting in judgment of others. Most important, hate takes time and energy, time you could be devoting to far more important pursuits like laughing at jokes or research. Hate only inspires more hate. What you need right now is love. Number five. When someone discovers you are sick, do not be surprised by their cruelty. For example, someone may say, oh, my grandmother committed suicide when she was diagnosed with that. Or an acquaintance might give you false information about your disease. This will happen, surprisingly frequently, with doctors. Friends in media and entertainment will write you into stories as a character, taking your hard-won experience of survival from you without permission and using it to advance their careers. You may see yourself become a morality tale for hard-living, 
dangerous choices, sexual promiscuity, eating meat, lack of religion. You may find your high school best friend does this, or your auntie. It is what people do. Use what they come across for their own purposes. You cannot blame them, but you do not have to be around them. Another acquaintance, after a frank conversation about your illness, may comment, Wow, it's terrifying that such a thing could easily so happen to me. Laugh at that person. Laugh at their narcissism, at a worldview that believes that illness picks and chooses victims for a moral or ethical reason or any reason at all. Laugh at the fact that they feel safe when you know that they are not. Hope that they remain safe because an unjust comeuppance for narcissism is illness. But do not trust that person. Do not trust anyone who takes from you in your moment of greatest need. So welcome back. That was a reading from Anne Elizabeth Moore's new book, Body Horror. Guys, let's let's go through some of this stuff. All of us have read different parts of it. What what interests me, Anne, is that your take on horror films and the the lack of female characters in it, uh, you put that down to a kind of a deep-seated misogyny almost in in horror films and the way horror films are consumed in America. Can you kind of take us through some of that? Yeah, I mean the the argument is much more about that capitalism is built on a gender difference and that women's uh, unwilling participation in labor of all kinds is fundamental to capitalism i mean this is a, a argument that's been made around race since forever um and some have also made it around gender but it is sort of clear that when we look at something like the garment industry that the entire workings of certain economies rely entirely on women being underpaid and, and silent about the fact that they aren't earning enough money to survive. That's capitalism. Then, of course, we have media, which is a part of capitalism. And built into that is the same kind of misogyny. And when we look at something like horror films, where we're really celebrating like the violent and the disgusting and the, the grody, we see a pretty <laughs> <laughs> clear... Uh, depiction of what really is, you know, masculine fears often perpetrated on the bodies of women. Have you seen It Follows? I was just curious because I know yeah. that you are uh, doing, are you still living in Detroit? I am, yeah, yeah. just uh, just north of Hamtramck. Yeah, are you, have, did you see It Follows? I did, I watched it recently. Did yeah, you? I didn't see it when it came out, but I just recently watched it. What did you think? Well, okay, definitely like an amazing look at the city of Detroit. Um, maybe not so much an interesting horror film, to my mind. I thought it was boring. Yeah, I think everyone loved it, and I think that they don't watch enough horror movies. I have another question for you. Have you seen any of the French New Wave, such as Martyrs or Inside or any no, of those? those are all on my list, but one of the issues with Detroit is that it's hard to get current international film. That's, I, I can imagine. Well, it's interesting. Martyrs was about a government experiment where they take children and basically torture them until they have religious visions and the protagonist is a woman mm -hmm. um and she actually escapes and then you catch up with her as an adult and it's mm -hmm. kind of told through flashback and i that and inside mm -hmm. um are probably i've seen you know you talk about spit on your grave um in the book mm -hmm. or was it i spit on your grave yeah 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 you talk yeah. about i spit on your grave which um, I actually saw when I was young and didn't really have a comprehension of it. But, uh, you know, I've seen all the, you know, the shockers that blow people's minds. But th that French New Wave is 
like inside i almost had to turn off i don't know if you know the premise of that yeah at raw is another one that people are really that one just really came out yeah i'm about. waiting for that to come out snowtown yeah. murders was kind of like that yeah yeah snowtown murders was fantastic yeah i recommended that one to mike and his and his partner and they both were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, you are, you, <laughs> we have to be careful around Megan. You, you are the malcontent of the group. So. <laughs> it's, it's good to mention, not to get away from horror films, but quickly, you are in Detroit, and it's a very interesting situation that you're in. You left Chicago as, as part of a, it seems to be a very unusual situation. You, <laughs> you have a house to write in. Could you tell us about that? I was given a house. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, the, there's an organization in Detroit called Write a House, and they... <laughs> for whatever bizarre and amazing reason, have decided to buy houses, rehab them, and give them to writers. And they plopped us all in the middle of Banglatown, which is a Bengali um, neighborhood just north of Hamtramck, as I mentioned. And then we have a house, and we figure out how to be homeowners, and we write. And that's pretty much what we do. Um, after two years, the house goes in my name, um, and until then, I am a, a good neighbor that writes books, which admittedly doesn't make a lot of sense to my neighbors who are like <laughs> farmers and working in restaurants and doing like auto repair stuff. But um, it's completely amazing and weird. Yeah. How did you get involved in this? Because it, it seems so anti-capitalist. Yeah. What? And it is. Um, but I, I mean, I applied because when word leaked out that someone was giving houses away to writers, it was the best idea I'd ever heard in my life. And I was like, of course I want to be a part of that. The story of how I actually won the house is much more complicated than that. But the bottom line is I applied and then they gave me a house. Well, actually, Mike showed me an application for that when they first started that project because he's like, I, he was thinking about doing it. And, um, we were like, this is a great idea, and it, it would be cool if they would do that here in Chicago. You know, let's go into some neighborhoods that need people to move in and, you know, find some writers, especially people that are from here, or, you know, get some minority uh, input, you know, go into some of these neighborhoods that are that are empty and, and, and need some people to live there. Well, yeah. I think the two main players, I don't know much about the female main player, but the... Um, the man behind it, Toby Barlow. Mm -hmm. He's Although written a couple of novels. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. Um, so he's a, a novelist, although he's not involved in Write a House anymore. Oh, no? And then Sarah Cox is, uh, was a journalist and sort of like publisher, web, web publisher for a long time. Okay. Um, so they, they do have this like affinity for what writers need. Um, but they're also Detroit transplants, so there's a lot of conversation around, like, what does it mean to be a transplant, and how can we actually build that into something that has meaning? Did you, have you done any exploration to how nonprofits fit into the system of capitalism? Oh, yeah, profound. In fact, that's been the majority of my contributions okay. to the whole discussion okay, so of a capitalism. Okay, so a few, the few essays that I read in the book, I... They didn't touch on that no, particular part. No, but um, yeah, the entire sort of system of funding internationally, of course, NGOs and then locally not-for-profits and 501c3s and some of the newer uh, B Corps, which is what we have in Michigan. That Has it passed in Illinois yet? I don't know if it's passed in Illinois Yeah, yet. I think maybe it has, but... Uh, well, actually, um, our budget's being held hostage by our governor, so I don't know if anything's passed. Right, nothing's passed in yeah, Illinois yeah, for yeah. years. Um, 
But the ways that those end up sort of manipulating what can happen in a neoliberal society are almost, I would say, more significant than what happens in the corporate world. You, uh, you use a term in the, um, I guess you'd call it the coda, or the, the last essay of the book, mm -hmm. it's called Three Months After Emerging from Your Deathbed. Death yeah. Well, I had a couple questions about that, actually. You, you chose to narrate it in the second person, and I think you did it with one other Mm -hmm. essay mm -hmm. in the book um did it start off that way did you start off writing it from the that person that last essay which is like mm -hmm. the like if like if i'm at a reading and maybe not going very well uh, and i want to punish the audience that's <laughs> the essay that i pull out because people will cry uh -huh. um and the interesting thing about that essay is that maybe of all the like like personal or semi-personal essays that I've ever written, that was the one that just came out complete. Like the, the voice was there, the structure of the story was there. I did some editing, obviously. But um, but yeah, that was always a second-person piece. You used a, a term in there, a phrase called um, intellectual promiscuity. Yeah. And I, I, I hadn't heard that before, and I liked it. But it made me think about the project you've done, the kind of writing you do, which I think takes seemingly disparate topics and tries to interconnect them and make you really challenge your perspective of the world and society and how it functions. And I think to get there, it takes a certain amount of... Intellectual promiscuity. Yeah, You're yeah. calling me a slut. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, well, I mean, it's not untrue. <laughs> um, do, you, do you run into that uh, problem a lot of people being you know, intellectually monogamous? And yes. not being willing to to look at uh, what you're trying to make them explore. Oh, for and, sure. And how do you get around that? Yeah, I mean, or that is the effect of capitalism, for sure, is building sort of intellectual silos that have no communications between them, that therefore we can't actually see why the standardization of time keeps us from eliminating or decreasing ableism you know like there's there's all these ways that intellectual monogamy has enforced many of the sort of social problems that we're trying to think about how to deal with today um and like for sure like it's a it's a regular problem in publishing because people want to they want to put a label on the book so that they can put it on the shelf of the place where it goes in the, the bookstore and then they can recommend it as the best new feminist whatever. And you're like, well, yeah, except for I hate the term feminism and it doesn't really address non-binary people. And also there's this problem of like mostly I'm talking about compost and also, you know, talking vagina movies. And so you are constantly – challenging what people think they mean when they say certain like big um, umbrella terms and that's the job I guess that's I'm glad you were mentioned you guys are talking about this because when I was reading the book I was actually thinking about like Bill O'Reilly's take on this book like um, <laughs> you know she's comparing supermodels to garment workers in Cambodia can you you know and like this outrage and and it's we talk about this a lot on the show but we're in our little bubbles you know this intellectual bubble and uh, in Chicago most of my friends don't like the current administration we're pretty much across the board president mayor governor um and not all but most and 
we get in this world and it's like I have these conversations with Mike and Jamie and, and, and people like you that I wouldn't have with other people because yeah. um, for one thing, I hang out with a lot of guys in the trades and we don't talk about, you know, uh, ableism or things like that. But mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to mention, you know, my I lost my brother to ALS last year and he, oh, he had gosh, it for a I'm year sorry. and it was like, you know, God. and I just remember people coming to visit him and he was in a wheelchair and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen the the devastation of ALS and it was probably the, you know, it's the most brutal thing I've ever been through, but it, it's, um, when you see how people behave around people that aren't, and I, I think you can tie that in functioning bodies under capitalism. Yes. That's yeah. what I was going to say. And that, yeah. that was basically your thesis. And, um, you know, we see that all the time and we have this in it. You could take it with anything like, you know, people that are overweight or, um, mm-hmm. different in different ways, and I, that's the thought process that you got me rolling on. But I was mm-hmm. also thinking, it's like, who is this going to appeal to? And like, how do we get it outside of like, who's going to read it anyway? Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. It is a hard question. And it's, it's definitely a question that has plagued and or defined my entire career. The problem is, and I, I sort of say this in a different work, way inside the book, inside one of those essays in the second person where I can have the job of of doing the work or I can have the job of explaining why the work is important, but I can't do both of those jobs. So at this point, I have to rely on everybody else to do the work of explaining why it's important or, or of stumbling across it and figuring out why it's important themselves. Because otherwise, I will never be able to actually make some of those connections. And I think some of the connections I ended up making in this book were things that I've been dancing around for the last decade maybe and and they feel really important to me to now be able to say okay wrote that down and now I can like build on the fact that I see that there's a a similar structure at work in the standardization of time as there is in the uh, intellectual property rights regime and I can move forward from that Uh, the rest of it I got to leave up to like agents and publishers and you know media hell yeah i'm totally a control (laughs) freak (laughs) um just for listeners um ann was talking about the standardization of time there's an essay in the book i think is it under that title oh leaving Uh, the standardization something i don't know (laughs) and i I had no idea Uh, isn't that crazy well if you're ever curious about how it got to be you know 12 o'clock here and also 12 o'clock 12 o'clock in Texas at the same time. So people could make more money. <laughs> <laughs> but it also so the astronomers yeah, could, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pull right. Pull one over on you. Yeah, NASA. Was it NASA? No, or it's those, just some it was like pre-NASA, astron- right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. Guys who were looking at stars here and guys who were looking at stars in Russia. I yeah. forgot about that part. And they actually, well, that's the trick of it. Then, yeah. the, then they're like, hey, railways, you should really do this. It's they really already don't like you. you so. the <laughs> <laughs> They'll never get mad. Take the fall. Well, this is a good time to pause for another reading. This is another uh, excerpt from Body Horror by Anne Elizabeth Moore. We'll be right back in just a couple minutes. Note, please, who it was that we are told wanted time standardized. The robber barons that ran the railroads, the wealthy, and high-stakes financial investors. Let me take another moment to underscore that. The standardization of time did not emerge from a popular uprising. A little over a century later, in 1989, 
an astronomer, employee of the U.S. Army Laboratory Command, and time historian named Ian R. Bartke published an article called The Adoption of Standard Time. In it, he revealed that standard time was not initiated by the railways at all. In fact, it was initiated by astronomers, who preferred to let the private interests of the railroads both do the dirty work of, and take the blame for, the fundamental shift to the way U.S. residents arranged their days and interacted with each other that standardized time would require. Of course, this was calculated. People already hated the rich, who ran the railroads, but harbored few to no opinions about the scientists who looked at the stars. Those scientists, however, needed a better way of communicating across great distances of land what was happening at the exact same time. Why not see if the railways would get on board with this standard time thing, the astronomers figured, and do the dirty work? Pure science should not be sullied by such quibbles. For it turns out that the standardization of time was enormously controversial. Bartke describes explosions and people shooting out the massive town clocks that the railways had installed, monuments to a hated temporal uniformity, in protest of the stripping away of individual determination over when things were going to happen. What people were protesting the loss of, and how they got around even on trains before the introduction of standard time, was talking to other people. Business owners were angered by standard time because a centrally installed clock meant no one had to step into their store to inquire about the local time. Unmarried young people were sad because eligible hotties passing through had no excuses to start a conversation. And train porters, perhaps the most frustrated of all, saw full minutes shaved off of needed rest stops at several different points in their already long, overworked days. And we're back here on I-94 with Anne Elizabeth Moore. Just heard another reading from her latest book. Standardization of time is what we were just talking about. Um, it's very interesting that time and control of workers has become such a central thing not only in our civilization, but in our society right now under the Trump administration. It seems that so much that is going on is about how you can control uh, dissent, how you can control information. Uh, the, the, the day we're taping this show, actually, uh, Rins Priebus uh, said that the president was looking at how to uh, mend libel laws so the government could sue the media. Um, all of this seems to be a, a kind of a creeping authoritarianism, which is something that you talk about in your book as well. Can you kind of, what does it mean right now to be working in this kind of very strange, chaotic era where some of the things that we, we took for granted are under threat and many of the things that we didn't even ever think about are, are suddenly be, being called into relief and now we're having to think about them in very different ways? Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on right now. And I think we're all feeling like distracted and awful and at a loss as to what can be done about it. One of the unusual, new, lucky things about me is that, you know, I have like between four now and eight um, sort of chronic debilitating illnesses. And like, I have to exclusively worry about my survival day to day. That's what I have to worry about. So that means a certain amount of sleep, certain kinds of foods, I have to sort of limit my stress, I have to know, make sure that I'm not being stabbed, <laughs> not falling out of windows. And um, the current administration makes a lot of that very difficult. But of course, threats of the repeal of the ACA are immediately, um, you know, hostile to me. Also, of course, because I live in a Bengali Muslim community, threats of um, various forms of deportation and questions around immigrants' rights are immediately threatening to me. So 
for me, these all become how, how do I get through the day questions? And I have to make sure politically that rights aren't seated in either the sort of immigration world or the healthcare world. And that is taking up all of my time. And uh, that's what I'm doing mostly instead of writing right now. <laughs> well, you'll have a lot to write about when it's all over. Done exactly. I had a question about um, the essay Concepcion. Yeah. Consumption. 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 Sorry. Consumption. I think the way I pronounced it first was Consumption. We're yeah. terrible at pronunciations <laughs> yeah. on the show. Um, none of us are the intelligentsia. We read a lot and we get a lot of books with authors that are in translation. We slaughter them all the time. So Sorry. we always have a disclaimer that um, if we make a mistake, or if we say something, if we mispronounce, I mispronounce words. I said Argentina. I said Donald Bartholm. Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. Yeah, yeah, but that's all like an indication that you read. Yes, and I do read. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not offended by you reading. I'm not. I'm not. None of. Well, I would say Jamie's intellectual, but I'm certainly not. No. And so we try to. Uh, we try to clarify things. That's what I was trying to get to. <laughs> well, that's like a 1700s I word. Think it's from Middle English. So who gives it? Rat's Something ass like anymore. That. Oops, well, I swore. Sorry. I think you can no, say that. No, you can say that. Actually. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, I thought the way you laid out that essay was really interesting. The The first half of it is a analysis of Margaret Atwood's 1969 novel, The Edible Woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the second half uh, explores a real-life 2000, a contemporary blogger. Yeah. Um, suffering from IBS mm -hmm. and um, the way one of the things I explored in reading that essay was how we relate to fiction and how we what we do with fiction and what we do with nonfiction and for some reason I can't really put it into words or haven't tried to yet but fiction is able to mm, manipulate the way I think and feel more so than a blogger or, or nonfiction. And is that something you were exploring in that essay? Yeah. Well, yeah. In that's like half of where, when I explore that question, that essay is sort of half of it. Um, another half that isn't in this book is that I'm also trying to write fiction for like the first time in my life around some of these same questions. Um, and so I definitely think that that is, that that tends to be true for people, that people who read fiction, you know, it opens up this different space in your brain, this different potential, this different way of maybe making the connections that we, you know, otherwise don't have access to making easily. Um, but another a friend of mine, Matthew Sharp, a novelist in New York, noted that, that that essay is really interesting to him because it looks at sort of um, literary criticism, journalistic criticism, and then there's actual like medical reporting and then a little bit of sort of personal essay stuff. And he was like, you know, it's – he wasn't trying to say that it's messy exactly, but he was – definitely going along this intellectual promiscuity line of like, it's a little all over the place, you know? And my response to this was like, well, I'm my writing right now is really influenced by composting, right? By the idea that you can take a bunch of these ideas, throw them together in a bin, let them rot for a little while, and see what 
maybe emerges that's sort of health-inducing after that. Um, to so, me, that's extraordinarily important, though, because people that just look at things from one direction, it's yeah. maddening. And I think the – I like that you have this mishmash of ideas yes. that come together. Okay. I, and I wouldn't say rotting. Let's say uh, blossoming. No. <laughs> but I, I like the compost um, analogy, and I, I think – I'm like that too. Like I, I know a ton of stuff about a, a lot of little things. So like yeah. I know a lot about music or this or that. But you're taking um, your knowledge of literature, your, you know, your first person accounts of of being sick, mm-hmm. and these things and mashing them together. And I, to me, it's it's more interesting than just reading a straight essay about, you know. Syria or something. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, and if that essay had been written in any one of those traditional styles, it's it's a way basically of that essay. What that, that what that essay does is it attempts to explain that food production in the United States is making us sick. Bottom line, and that is something that affects the ways that we move through the world in all areas. And so there would there would be no way of actually making that clear to people without being like, oh, and also this, and also this, and there's this other thing. Do you do you have that problem when you're writing that the scope just kind of grows and grows and grows and grows? Right. And is grows it a problem or is it what I've decided I embrace? Well <laughs> Yeah, no, I I, yeah. I love that in, in yeah. any writing. Anytime mm-hmm. there's that kind of interconnectivity. Yeah. Um I, I I'm drawn to that. But from the writing side, I can also see how your scope becomes unmanageable almost. You, it's it's, it's hard. It's hard to. Yeah. 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 And who knows? Maybe I don't do it at all. You. You. I thought you Doesn't did. Matter. Yeah, you did. No, you did. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Then it works. I'm just saying. From a, I'm not a writer. Well, I write, but I, I'm not a published writer. But from that perspective, you did a, a great job. I don't think everyone can do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, but maybe we can if we start exploring what the possibilities are for doing that. Absolutely. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back here on Lumpen Radio. You're listening to I-94 on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. And we're back on I-94. You're listening to Lumpin' Radio. We're here with Anne Elizabeth Moore and off-camera, well, off-radio, I guess. Is there a camera here? There probably is. Logan's probably got cameras all around this studio. <laughs> we, we were just noting that uh, we were talking about the death of a famous Detroit writer, and Anne was mentioning that she'd like to be shot dead at her typewriter, uh, <laughs> if that's the way you're going to go. Jeremy, I know you had a couple questions for Anne. Yeah, I just want to mention, too, we were talking about Donald Goins, and if you ever get a chance, he wrote the original like urban fiction, and he's pretty great writer um, it's pretty uh dated as far as uh, diversity and things like that and and sexist and all that good stuff but it is like the original gangster writing so if you're into that stuff it's pretty pretty great yeah 
Um, first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, you ruined Chicken McNuggets for me. For thank me. you. Oh, You're yeah, welcome. Big time. Yeah, yep, killed it. I eat like, McDonald's maybe like four or five times a year, and I always get a 20-piece Chicken McNugget. And I never butane, ate man. Yeah, I learned that they have butane in them. Mm-hmm. And Why would you put butane in Chicken McNuggets? Preservation. Preservatives, yeah. yeah. And, so, yeah. and they don't stick to the box, right? Wasn't that the, yeah. 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 Yeah, and they don't stick to each other. It's only 0.02%, though. Yeah. Well... Everyone, I guess everyone needs a little pizza. kill you later life. on, but yeah. it's tasty. I like to put <laughs> gasoline on my Thai food when I order it. Just point out. Just a little bit. So that's, yeah. really, that's really fun. I actually worked with a guy. This is an off topic, but I worked with a guy who was doing painting one summer. And I had a guy that would take cans of beer and dump off the top of them and put turpentine in them. Oh. Yeah. And uh, I can't repeat his exact phrasing because the FCC won't let me to. But his, his thought was it messes up your stomach a little bit, but it gives you a better buzz. And so I'm wondering maybe if the folks that uh, figured this one out uh, were working for McDonald's at that point. Well, yeah. there is a, a, a vast connection between um, addiction the sense of high that you can get from any substance whatsoever, the amount that you consume, and then your immediate desire to consume it again. So who knows? Maybe they've never tested butane for, like, addiction properties. That guy should read Ann's essay on IP yeah. and patent rights. Uh, he could have he made millions. <laughs> Mike, and I are, Mike and I are actually in recovery, so we know the... Yeah. We know the patterns. Oh, oh sorry, Mike. I just no. broke your anonymity. But, um, Thanks. One of the questions I wanted to ask is I've I was I would I moved to Chicago in nineteen ninety five and I, I liked how you said you moved here because of music um in the book and I, I did as well. I was going to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I dropped out and I moved here. And I will admittedly say I wasn't very politically active until the Bush administration, um, just because things changed drastically. And I'm not a huge Clinton defender or anything, but I didn't become I became much more aware when the Bush administration took over. Um, but I wanted to ask you, of all the interviews you did for Punk Planet, were you an interviewer? I just want to make sure. I, I had, I remember. Were, I, was I interviewing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. All of it. I didn't know if there was essays and stuff that you did, too. I, I, I've i read that I book. I forgot what it's called. Unmarketable? No, the one about the interviews from Punk oh, Planet. Oh, the We Owe You Nothing. Yes. Nothing, yeah. yeah. So what I wanted to ask you, just going back to the Punk Planet days, is what was your most memorable or aggravating interviews that you did back in the day? Well, I mean, I w- so I was around when Punk Planet was founded, but I didn't come back then to, to like really work in the office until 2004. So between 2004 and when we shut down in 2007, um, that, was, that was pretty much my era. Um, and at that time, you know, there was a lot going on in 2004. The main thing that we sort of don't realize was probably the most influential was that that was when all of the decisions that Bush Jr. made around post 9-11 politics, particularly the Department of Homeland Security, that was when the Department of Homeland Security actually was fully staffed and operational. And so everything that was like anti-terrorist, which of course is like austerity measures and, and problems and policing and surveillance, was in place then. So for me, I was in a in a very sort of concise political moment um, that was about the post-9-11 world really flourishing. So all of the exciting interviews I was doing were people that were sort of on the front lines of cultural production that were doing really amazing work that brought that moment to light. 
Um, and it was a lot of, of course, for me, this all of those things about surveillance and capitalism. These are, you know, issues of gender in their in their forefront. Um, so for me, all of the like post riot girl stuff was really exciting, and all of the non-binary and and crip queer artists that we were talking to were were doing the that work at that time. Um, but I mean, of course, like every day was just a ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous experience, and I probably could just go on for hours talking about, I don't know, the day that, <sighs> I, don't, I don't even want to start because I'll just get a lot of people in trouble. That's okay. Of course, uh, Punk Planet shut down because of the distribution problem, isn't that right? One of the independent Sort of secondarily, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, what we can look at is, is a whole history of government tightening around uh, mailing rights and... Uh, things that made distribution difficult for small to medium scale magazines. Um, but of course, like that's set against uh, the psychological effects of neoliberalism where people are like, I don't really need to support this thing. It's here already. It'll, it'll be fine without me. And, and these things don't affect me in a personal way. And so subscribers were dropping and people were more and more deliberately saying, um, Independent production does not differ in any significant way from corporate production. And that was what, of course, Unmarketable was written about 10 years ago. And that was really the biggest bummer was this shift in consciousness from like, it doesn't matter who pays you to, um, well, from it matters who pays you to it doesn't matter who pays you. And that's really interesting because Punk Planet was part of a wave of magazines that now no longer exist. There was a huge and vibrant culture. Um, Fact Sheet Five, Stop Stop Smiling, smiling. Um, Your Flesh. You guys, Punk Planet, I believe, covered almost every band that sent um, a piece of music to them. We, yeah, we reviewed everything we received for over a decade. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's nothing like that. Now, if you think of the knock on effects of that now, though, whereas you used to be able to pick up a magazine and find out everything that was going on, a particular cultural moment from from books and music, now it's nearly impossible. People are, are relying on. Spotify algorithms to find things, yeah. or Condé Nast-owned websites. Yeah. And that's not the same thing as a kind of a curatorial approach which you guys took. And I, I wonder if you could just speak briefly to what we've kind of lost as a result of that. Well, I mean, Punk Planet, when we shut down, was the primary platform for approximately 500 writers, cultural producers, graphic designers, illustrators, and many of those people have gone on to find other work. But the work that they did that defined their career and and put them in a place to know the kinds of stuff they would be doing for the rest of their lives was done at Punk Planet. So the loss of those 500 voices having absolute intellectual freedom to just do what they wanted, that's a loss that we won't, we can't even detect what the impact of that is. That's, um, That's gutting to me. Well, that's what's happened to journalism in general. You know, exactly. You know, exactly. People are paid $20 to write a blog article when back in the day, you know, you might have a job. And it's also, I like what you said about the government tightening because one of the neoliberal platforms is like small business, small business. But yeah. small businesses don't have any advantages. Especially, I mean, if you own a mom and pa in Chicago, whether it be a coffee shop or a barber shop, like my barber wouldn't give money to the, my alderman's platform. And then the city came the next day and told him to take his sign down. I'm not oh going to say God. the alderman's name, but his initials Amazing. are EB. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, it's like things like that. And government doesn't support small business. You know, no. they use that term, but like when they refer to small business, like 50 million or less, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a disgraceful thing. And people buy into that and think that these tax breaks are coming. So people like you and you and I can start something and it's just not true. Yeah. And, and of course, when we even say the word small business in a government context, the immediate hope is that that business will scale up and it will become a large business and then we will partner with government and then everything will be amazing for for both of us, right? But that's not in any way supportive of a general population. Exactly. And it's Ed Burke. I'm going to say it. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I was going to say it, but I'm glad that you did. I mean, that's an interesting thing, though. But the idea that a business has to grow all the time to just be viable yeah. is a concept that really is rarely examined correctly because that's not actually true. A business does not always have to grow to be successful and be self-sustaining. And there's this idea in our culture that if you don't have growth at any cost, you're, you're dead. And that's a bizarre thing to me. Yeah. And that was really what was happening in the 1990s around sort of independent cultural production like Punk Planet was this realization that actually no, you didn't need to grow. You needed to serve. You needed to work among the people that supported you in creating the thing in the first place. And that that was what we actually now call sustainable. And now that sustainable means theoretically like long-term future ever-expanding growth and sort of the lapping in of all sorts of other um, processes in order to sustain yourself, we don't even know how to like make a sustainable sort of framework for economic security anymore. That reminds me of, uh, I went to um, Memphis recently and they have uh, this, it, this pyramid that used to be a stadium, which they've turned into this giant bass pro shop. Wow. And my wife and I went there just because they have alligators there and I wanted to see the alligators. And we were like walking through. It's crazy how yeah. big it is. And my wife looked at me. She's like, this lifestyle is not sustainable. And it was <laughs> like, it was, and we just started cracking up because we were, it was like so stated in the obvious, but it, it's, it's, it's insane how much stuff is produced. Like yeah. I recently w went and I Googled like White Sox hats. Yeah. And there's like thousands of White Sox hats. You know, it's one team in one city that's not a very good team that probably doesn't sell a lot of merchandise. Hey, hey, it's the best team in baseball in April. Now, come oh, on. Oh, that's true. Come on. Okay, April's over, on. though. Yeah. April's <laughs> over. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like there's so much stuff. Yeah. And it's like how are we going to continue this? It, it, it's one of those things I can't think about too much because I'm like, you know. Well, not – I mean, so one of the pieces that – was in consideration for the book that builds on some of the labor reporting that I've done, looks at the impact of that hyper-production mode in Cambodia. And what we saw in Cambodia between uh, 2007, when I first started going there, and 2014, which was my last trip there. I was going to ask, did you live there or did you just spend it? I spent a part of every year there, okay. yeah. Um, was that production was amping up so rapidly that workers were failing to actually physically be able to respond, and they were falling to the floor, fainting in mass numbers between 800 on the small end and 2,500 on the large end. And this still continues today. So production is so high, capitalist production, like pretty clearly, that women's bodies are failing to be able to keep up with it. 
which is how we get sort of the misogyny and then how we start to look at this as an impact specifically on on the the failures of women's bodies to keep up with capitalist demands. That's a good point. And it's a good place to pause for yet another reading from your book. We'll be right back in about two seconds. This is a reading from Body Horror by Anne Elizabeth Moore. Perhaps because my pictures from that time are so filled with vibrant color, I can only describe being on the streets of Cambodia at the start of 2014 as the experience of pure joy. Around 9 a.m. on January 3, workers gathered around Veng Srang Street. Many were striking to demand the $160 wage, but some had other concerns. Back pay at some of the nearby factories was still owed to workers. The mood was light, however. One striking worker told me that, more or less, the protest was a big dance party. Quietly, in the background, a military unit gathered. Later identified as Brigade 911, an Indonesian-trained force with an unruly history including participation in the 1998 election-related violence, they dressed in sparkling new riot gear. They arrived by truck. They took out their guns, AK-47s and Norinco Type 97A assault rifles. Then, as a livid young man named Ka Se told me in front of a clinic on Vrangsang, they fight the dancers. Warning shots were fired over the heads of protesters. The crowd threw rocks and sticks in response. Police answered with live rounds, killing at least five, injuring and arresting many more. Several of the injured or arrested later claimed they weren't even protesting. One was a food vendor working nearby, seeking to feed her family by selling food to protesters. When the police shoot the people, one guy died over there, Kase pointed to a spot a few feet away. He's still alive? The police shoot more. Were all five factory workers, I asked. There had been no confirmation of this at the time, but Kase, in his blood-red t-shirt, seemed to know all the players. Sophie, a garment worker in her early 20s who was also there that day, crossed her arms and looked disgusted. A third friend, who didn't give his name, said yes, but many more than five, this friend added. He pointed to a wall 15 yards to our right, marking the property of the Sunwell Shoes Company. They throw one body there, many others they take away in the car. Missing persons reports later emerged, although the official death toll was not raised. A striker standing near Kase was shot. He mimed how he and two friends carried the gunshot victim to the medical clinic where we now stood not 30 feet from where MPs were shooting, a point across the street Kaisei pointed out to me. The clinic director turned them away. He was scared about the government, Kaisei said. The striker died. He stood over the spot, glaring angrily at the ground. I looked away out of respect. Kaisei spread his arms behind him, gesturing to the ruined clinic at our backs. So we do this, he said. The building had been destroyed, gutted, everything smashable smashed, everything wrenchable hurled to the ground and stomped on. The sign bearing the name of the clinic was riddled with holes, clearly caused by one young man on another's shoulders, one holding on while the other punched. The group chased out a woman who had just given birth, then tore through everything in sight. Two days later, the clinic was still a pile of rubble, testifying to an anger not released but delayed. The angry trio I interviewed stood at its entrance, glaring at everyone. The nameless friend's parting words to me were a comment that the Garmer workers were no longer demanding $160 per month. Now we just need machine guns, he said. I had a question for you, and I'm bringing it back to Jamie's original point about, um, I guess, a curatorial approach to sharing cultural interests to a 
mathematical one, I guess, the way yeah. that <laughs> Spotify or other organizations like it are doing it now. Um, I think that's one of the reasons we do this show is is to share interests, share books, share literature in in a more personal way. And I was not always a reader, not even close, <laughs> like until my mid to late twenties. And the way I've come across all the books that I've read and enjoyed and sometimes not enjoyed at all is through talking to people. Is yeah. through talking to booksellers or librarians or whoever. And one of the things about our economy and the way a lot of businesses are set up, you, you were talking earlier about um, the way any book is presented on the market has as much, if not more, to do with the marketing department of that publisher than the content of the book. And I think one James of James Patterson is the ultimate example of that. Of everything. Yeah, because he was a marketer and they learned that if you put his books in a certain location in the bookstore, people pick them up before they'll pick up other things. And that his whole popularity was based basically on statistics, marketing principles. And he doesn't even write his own books now. He has yeah, other people writing. Right He's now blurbing his own books, though. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: there's there's a real value in what those marketers do. There is a ton to choose from. There's just there's a ton of stuff. There's a ton of music. There's a lot of people making cool, interesting music. There's a lot of people writing interesting books. You can't read them all. You can't listen to them all. Um, and I think that's supposedly the the, the job of the. Um, of the marketers to, to tell you based on your preferences or the history of your preferences and your choices, you can sift out all this stuff. You don't have to go crazy when you walk in the library and you see a million books. We'll tell you what you'll like. And it doesn't work for me because there's always an angle that I don't know about. What works for me is shows like this, talking to people face to face, going into the bookstore and and just having an experience and then following that with my own experience of the book or, yeah. or the record or whatever it is. And, you know, that that's what I thought of when you asked that question, Jamie. And how I don't want to believe that it's impossible to create that experience um, now, nowadays, the way the way our economy is set up. What are some of the obstacles we've been talking about? And what do you think some of the solutions are for setting up that kind of enterprise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's entirely possible, you know, to use the punk planet model or similar wide open notions of um, of offering light to cultural production as long as you sort of... Um, define your parameters pretty clearly like it would be entirely possible for me and I, and i've been trying to figure out a way to do this for the last year in fact to review every book that comes out that looks at comes from or discusses detroit in any significant way because that's a fairly small number of books you know growing but small growing and maybe there's a lot of them that sort of are in a particular development is awesome direction because detroit's becoming a brand I well, was, I yeah. I was at my friend's house, and he had Detroit shampoo. Yeah. yeah. And there are <laughs> deliberate moves within city government of Detroit to yeah. make that happen, which different problem entirely. 
but but so it is possible to sort of be select but 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 be very general within that and then i think you can have something that more closely resembles what we would like democracy to be than than what we currently have now when we walk into the Amazon bookstore, which it exists, right? There's one here now. Yes, yeah. But I, I, I don't know anybody there, who's been there. Ever, no. Yeah, no. And, and I've been, yeah, nothing at nothing but bookstores for like a month and a half. And Support your Andrew bookstores, people. You'll oh learn God. a lot. Never go there. Um, so, but, I, but, I, but I think it's possible. I just think that no one... It hasn't occurred to anyone to actually do it. And that's what the real problem is. And that's why I go back to these notions of, of composting, of like, let's find a way to make those connections. But, um, you know, if we have a, a notion of business that's founded exclusively on you need to scale up and you need to make the most money as possible and you need to really be supporting these important money figures, then we're just never going to have this, like, support for for broad-ranging cultural products that well, we that's need. what the nonprofit label is presumably for, right? So you don't have Was, to... yeah, for oh. sure. But was, I think, is an interesting point. Was. Yeah. I mean, I, in the 1990s, the, the mandates for a not-for-profit organization pretty much fundamentally changed, and, and it became more important at that point that you have a CEO of your not-for-profit hmm. organization and that you really do try to create a value-added situation. You're not just responding to social need. You're building a brand. And as that shifted and changed, and we can see this in my work around the anti-trafficking NGOs, especially in Cambodia, but also in the United States, these became very clear profit-making centers, often for businesses to which they were armed or um, affiliated or... Uh, the the businesses would sort of support them in a public way, and then they had this like partnership going. And now, really, the not for profit world has ended up just kind of bolstering the corporate system in a way that's really a bummer. Yeah, that's gross. And isn't this just part of the entire cult of business, though, that affects American culture at the moment? There's this idea that if you're not like a business in some fundamental way, you're a failure. All our politicians. Well, yeah. Bruce yeah. Rauner, he's a businessman. He's going to fix stuff in Illinois. He hasn't fixed anything. He's destroyed the state. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, there's there's part of this this ideological cult. Like when you mentioned nonprofits, you had to have a CEO. Why? Yeah. There, what's the point of that? You never had one before. You had to have a, a board that ran itself like a corporation. Why? What well, What was the point of that? Why did they take money away from what the the nonprofits actually were doing? to run this business. The overhead of some of the nonprofits now exceed what they're giving out yeah. to, to the people they're supposedly benefiting. I think that's something you've talked about before, but I mean, this this is a very dangerous idea that's come in, in the last 20 years. Yeah, and we, we talk about it under the umbrella term neoliberalism, of course, this idea that we each are our brand building opportunities and that we each have the possibility to contribute to the bottom line of the most important entity, which is our own sort of profit-making agenda. And that, that's a new concept. And that, didn't, that wasn't entirely necessary for people to survive 20 years ago. And yet it's something, especially as I teach college kids, especially in Detroit, that is more and more intrinsic to how they define themselves. Are you I at CCS? A, I am. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. One of my buddies teaches there. Yeah. Oh, good. I want to. I'll tell you Talk his name later. Good. Well, his name's Rob Jameson. But um, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to tell you a funny story. We were talking about branding. So, you know, I do these punk rock shows 
um, and it's called Punk Rock and Donuts, and it's because we have a coffee hour with coffee and donuts and then punk rock bands. The best, obviously, good combination. See, it's a, it's a very simple title, and I That's did, good branding, Jeremy. Uh, well, here it comes. I did a, a presentation about innovative library programs for an architectural firm, and this woman came up to me. She's like, I just want to tell you that branding was amazing. so simple, but yet so powerful, and I was just like, I really was just saying what it is. Like, yeah. it's punk rock and you're eating donuts. Like, there's no, like, there was no thought about that. There was no, yeah. and I was like, I was like, it spun me out, you yeah. know, because I had to do this presentation. I was just like, wait, what? How is this, like, branding? I mean, it's just, it's a simple explanation of what's happening. Well, when Unmarketable came out, it was. I got to read that. I'm going to pick that up. Okay, yeah. It's, it's good for your library. I think it'll be a, a thing that resonates with your people there. But it, it came out, and uh, and it was quite popular, and then it became more popular. And then uh, the ad agencies and the marketers were like, this is the thing. <laughs> and so I got all these like very, very, very sincere requests to write a column in a, an advertising weekly about how marketing is horrible. I got thousands of requests from marketing agencies to come and talk to them about how they're awful and they need and eventually it became this joke and I ran this program called the whatever it was part of this collective and we did something called the anti-advertising agency and we raised a bunch of money to convince a marketing agent to quit their job because they were horrible and uh, and even that (laughs) ended up in the pages of advertising magazines and it was just like there's no way to actually talk about this anymore in a way that makes sense to Sounds people. Sounds like something Thomas Frank would write about. Did you hear from him at all? Yeah, yeah. We are we are in communication okay. for sure. Yeah. I like Thomas Frank a lot. It sounds almost as if the same people that are uh, purchasing the services of professional uh, dominatrixes uh, need to have that masochism in their daily life as well. Well, there is. I mean, marketers and advertising <laughs> agents are completely about self-abuse yeah. for sure. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. We only have a couple more minutes. we got to wrap it up. But And we want to thank you very much for coming on the program. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? God, I don't know. What do you, what do you want final thoughts about? i got a million of them. Got a million final thoughts? Yeah. There's a lot about poop in the book. We didn't talk about poop hardly yeah. at all. Yeah. Didn't. Sorry about okay. that. I actually talk about poop a lot, so I'm, actually, I'm surprised okay, that so you're covered. Come okay, on. never We're mind. Yeah. Okay, good. We, we probably should talk. We should probably wrap it up talking about um, your experience with the medical industrial complex Mm. obviously you've gone through a tremendous uh, amount and you know obviously we're in a horrible time right now with obamacare under threat what what's going on why are people so cruel is kind of my question (laughs) (laughs) i know i mean i think we just explained it neoliberalism and 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 behind that the entire sort of notion of capitalism and the need to profit from each other um, and that's completely clear. What's what's completely weird about it, and we talked about this a little bit before, is when you are faced with someone who has clear needs that go above and beyond sort of normal, so-called normal, so-called healthy, so-called standardized notions of successful body inhabiting that we can't then find a way to support them in continuing to exist in a society that demands their conformity. And 
the, that's amazing to me, but the the only thing that I have found that actually changes that in any direct way is, is reading, as we talked about before. The only thing that actually causes people to sort of rethink the way that they automatically respond to others is the only thing I can do is, is writing. Um, and so that's what I do. Well, we've talked about the role of fiction in the world and mm-hmm. – you know, there's all these cuts to humanities programs at universities and people saying, well, why would you get a degree in English literature? You can't yeah. get a job in that. And I, I cuts to de- libraries are gutting. It's horrible. I have a degree in English literature and everything I've learned about life and other places and things is through reading fiction and mm-hmm. nonfiction as well. Mm-hmm. But I read a lot more fiction than I read nonfiction. And I can't emphasize how important I was basically a alcoholic thug you know but i read all the time and and you know i am not in that world anymore but you know reading pretty much saved my life it gave me my career it got me through my military career it got me through dark times you know and i you know if there if i wasn't if i didn't have the love for books that i have i probably wouldn't be sitting here right now and i and that's not like a you know i'm not being how do you say that word hyperbolic yeah Say it however you want. Yeah. I support your right to say however you want, and I will continue to say it that way. Superfluous, I can never say Superfluous. That. Yeah, I can't say Superfluous. All right, well, we want to thank everybody for listening to the program. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Thanks to Anne Elizabeth Moore, who thank came you. all the thank way from so Detroit much, to uh, be with us. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to I-94 on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. <laughs> I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. CT. This episode features the work of Chicago author Anne Elizabeth Moore, with readings from her book Body Horror, published by Curbside Splendor. This episode originally aired on May 14, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. Additional bed music for I-94 from Marin Celeste, Justin Cholowa, and from the International Anthem Recording Company. For more information on I-94, visit lumpenradio.com.